Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones Rewatch Edition. I'm Vanny Fair, senior writer Joanna Robinson. Joining me, Vanny Fair, chief critic... Richard Lawson, hello, Richard. Hello. All right, we're back again. It's just been a couple days since we dropped our last episode. But in case this is the first time you're tuning in, here's what we're doing to get ready for the final season of Game of Thrones, which we'll be covering on this podcast still watching. Before we get to season eight, which is not until mid-April, we thought we'd run through the top 15 best slash most essential episodes of Game of Thrones the past seven seasons. We are running through them chronologically until we get to our last episode, our number one episode, which will just be the best episode of all time. But right now we're still in season one. Last week we talked about season one, episode one, winter is coming. This week <laughs> we're still in season one, but we've skipped to the end of season one. It's season one, episode nine, Baylor, which originally premiered on June 12th, 2011, written by Weiss and Benioff, Directed by Alan Taylor. Uh, this is an episode of television that a lot of people point to as an episode of television that changed television forever. Um, and so we can debate whether or not we agree with that. Um, as I, as I do in every one of these episodes, I've given myself the challenge of recapping Baylor in 15 words or fewer or less. Uh, my cap just meowed so you can, Consider that in a little Your homage dire to cat. Sir Pounce. <laughs> I was going to say Sir Pounce, but yeah, yeah, sure. Let's call it a dire cat. Um, so here's my 15-word recap of Baylor. Season 1, Episode 9. Rob promises Walter Frey, comma, beats Jamie. John gets a sword. Tyrion naps. Ned's dead, baby. There you go. Uh, all right. So that's, that's it. I think I covered everything there, everything essential. Um, before we get to sort of our broader, you know, 
why we think this episode is so important or essential. We're going to run through some of our like awards that we like to give uh, for, for the episode. So I'm going to start with my obvious MVP of this episode. My obvious MVP of the episode Baylor. It's, uh, it's got to be Ned Stark. Sorry. It starts with this amazing like scene with him and the black cells with Varys. That is a uh, classic then, scene. That is such a well-written, well-acted scene. So good. And then it ends with, you know, this this execution and, and just uh, everything that Sean Bean does, uh, you know, vo- voicelessly with his face, searching the crowd, all of that. So good. So obvious, mm-hmm. obvious MVP of Baylor, Ned Stark. What do you, what do you say? My obvious MVP is Catelyn Stark. Um, I mm. think that um, Michelle Fairley gets some great stuff to do in this episode. Um, in terms of like negotiating with the hideous ghoul that is Walter Frey and thus sort of sealing her fate, uh, sadly. Um, and I just think that like, you know, she's been off the show for a long time and was never the most excited, like she was never the most dynamic or exciting character in some ways, but she was very necessary to it. And I think that like the sort of commitment that Michelle Fairley gives to it, uh, in this episode is, is really, um, important to the, to the kind of, um, dramatic stakes of everything. Excellent. My sneaky MVP of this episode. Uh, I just got to get in some love for, uh, Lord Tywin Lannister, who isn't in this episode a lot. We, we don't get to talk about the episode where we meet him butchering a deer, one of, one of the all time great intros of a character on Game of Thrones. But, but, you know, if you want to talk about good dad Ned Stark, let's also talk about bad dad Tywin Lannister and the way he dresses down his sons, not just Tyrion, but also Jamie. Um, in this sort of like encampment scenario that he, uh, hangs out in, in season one. So Charles Dance, Tywin Lannister, sneaky so MVP. What do you think? Richard? Uh, my sneaky MVP is someone actually who's kind of like nice, uh, which is Maester Eamon, uh, oh, yes. of the Night's Watch. And I think that, you know, that I don't have the actor's name in front of me, but, um, that performance is so good when he sort of reveals, the his sort of backstory you know and i think that like it's such a great evocative scene because um the books are are at their best when they're actually looking back into history and they're sort of reveries into the past and lore and myth and all that stuff and i think the show especially in the early seasons occasionally got to those heights and i think that that scene where aemon kind of tells Jon snow like you know who he really is um is, is really really effective um, yes, I, I love Mr. Eamon. Uh, he has my favorite death line of all time, which I'm not sure we're going to get to see that episode, but that's, um, egg. I dreamed I was old, oh, old timer, yeah. uh, for me. Um, all right. And so then we're going to do our favorite quotes from the episode, which Richard and I, as former theater kids have vowed to, uh, perform in some way. Um, I am once again, um, going to, to try to do my best Sean Bean impression. So here we go. Uh, you think my life is some precious thing to me that I would trade my honor for a few more years? That's a terrible, I didn't even do the impression, but I, I put some pepper on it. All right. Uh, Richard, what do you got? Uh, it's Tyrion saying, you once loved a woman many years ago, but it turned out badly, so you've never let yourself love again. Oh, wait, that's me. <laughs> such a dumb line, but I like it, But because it reminds me of Michelle Pfeiffer coming home and Batman Returns and going, Honey, I'm home. Oh, wait, I'm not married. <laughs> 
so it's uh, just like it's such a modern yeah like construction that it just it sticks out like a sore thumb um but it's funny and you know um it's funny rewatching these episodes these early episodes and being like this is all pretty hammy you know i i, I really enjoy it but like um there's some there's some real 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 campy hammy stuff happening especially with uh uh Tyrion and, and a couple other people yeah, I, I I would agree with that. Um, I also love that I, I I was it was fun to be reminded of the Shay character because I'd kind of forgotten about her, um, and the way that she's sort of integrated into the show um, in a bigger way than she is really in the books. Um, so yeah, I I think that scene is is fun where they're drinking and sort of trying to decipher each other's lives. Yeah, they're kind of they're not playing they're almost playing Never Have I Ever sort of yeah it's exactly a, yeah it's really but like depressing story. Never yeah. <laughs> Very much. Um, all right. I am going to best dressed is kind of tough in this episode. We're going to do best dressed. It's rough because, you know, things are looking pretty drab at the Daenerys camp. Things are always drab at the wall. Like really the only, you know, things are kind of drab at the twins. The only thing that fashion that we have is either, uh, King's Landing or maybe something happening with the Lannisters. So I'll, 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 you know, I feel bad repeating myself, but I'm gonna again give it to Tywin Lannister. Mm. Uh, I've always loved that Lannister armor. So you know, the red, the red plate armor that they wear. I mean, uh, Tyrion wears it too, and all the guys wear it. But um, you know, I think Tywin wears it especially well. So Tywin Lannister in his Lannister armor. What do you say, Richard? I'm gonna travel a little east. I like what that witch is wearing. Okay. I'm, I'm into her whole look. <laughs> it seems easy. You just throw some f- fabric on yourself and just kind of like, you know, then you're done you're ready for the day i think you could do like a diy cosplay with like some hefty bags and some eyeliner (laughs) totally (laughs) i mean i'm wearing that right now (laughs) it's your everyday wear got it got it um all right and as for um a ship someone we are shipping this episode two characters or two things that we would like to get together in this episode um you know i'm gonna give it to like Pip and Gren, who are two of our like Night's Watchmen, I always felt like there should have been at least one gay love story in the Night's Watch. You, you you're read not, my mind. <laughs> you're not. Yeah. You're not allowed to fuck a woman. So you know, there was tell me there wasn't something happening on those cold, cold nights on the wall. Uh, is that your same answer? Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I think that you know this show has had a couple little gay moments. I mean, obviously with um. Renly uh and Loris, but like uh yeah, I'm I'm all for more of that. And also, yeah, it would be very realistic. Yeah. So there we go. Um that those are our little awards for this episode. Uh and now we get to talk about why it is sort of one of the best slash essential. It's easy to forget I will say some of the things that happen in this episode that aren't Ned's death. <laughs> Because mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. just think you hear Baylor and then you think, oh yeah, the one where Ned's head gets cut off, but that's not 60 minutes worth of material. So, uh, as we mentioned up top, this episode, uh, kind of begins with this other Ned scene, which to me, having just rewatched season one, I think this is one of the most are like, artistically or artfully done scenes. It starts yeah. with this like shot of Sean Bean's eye. There's just a lot of like flame reflection and all that sort of stuff. So Alan Taylor, who went on to direct some not very good movies and also an episode of Game of Thrones last season that I didn't love, but really knocks it out of the park in this one in terms of, I think, upping the game on what a Game of Thrones episode can look like. 
uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I think that there's something, and when I say that the show kind of is hammy, I, I don't really necessarily mean that as an insult, but like, it's just funny to be reminded that it's not, you know, it's not high, high art, except it is when you can, when you incorporate the visuals and everything like that. So I think it's really crucial to this show having the weight it does internationally that in addition to a compelling story, it look pristine, you know, because yeah. that way we can kind of forgive some of the clunkier lines or what, or bad accents or whatever. Um, and the, the, that scene is a great example. I mean, not that there's any clunky acting in that scene, but like, it's just like, wow, this is a very, very stylish, well-composed show. Um, and I think that's really crucial to our co- sort of cultural understanding and appreciation of the show. Absolutely. Um, the one funny thing about that scene is in the books, um, as you might recall, Richard, uh, Varys is this like master of disguise. And so sometimes like goes around in disguises and the show essentially abandoned that. And this is the only scene where they even make an attempt at that, where he's kind of dressed in like these sort of like clunky prison guard robes, like not his usual silky kimono look. And, uh, it's kind of funny because it's just sort of like a half effort. It's yeah. like, oh, he's got some heavy boots on. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, yeah. and then they're like, never mind. <laughs> We're you just know, not going to do that. Hill. Yeah, go ahead. This episode and another episode on our list coming up kind of had me thinking that like Varys they set up is such an interesting character in the beginning. And I think they kind of didn't know what to do with him, which is a shame. Um, because he gets so much good stuff in these early episodes. And I know he's like still part of the world, but like, I don't know. I feel like they, he promised a lot more, um, than, or he, he was promised a lot more than was delivered, I think. Yeah. I just, I think that, uh, the show had more room for a character like that early on than it does now. Exactly. Um, yeah. and yeah. there are some scenes, you know, since we're at the end of episode of season one with Baylor towards the end, um, I think it's safe to just sort of look back and say there are some scenes in season one that were put in because their run times were short. And so they have just a few two-handers that they sort of recorded. I don't know about later or whatever, but that, like their scripts were short or their run times were short. They needed to pad out the episodes. So there are a few two-handers. There's like Littlefinger talking to Varys, Jamie talking to Ned. A lot of them are like throne room scenes. So you just throw two actors in the throne room and have them say stuff. These scenes are incredible. They're so good. There's one with Cersei and Robert that is uh, slightly like complicates that storyline. And by the way, uh, we've just zoomed past Robert Baratheon, RIP Robert Baratheon. Um, but the Varys and Littlefinger stuff, um, when the show had time for it, it's just so good. You could just like sit and watch those two guys snipe at each other forever. So, yeah. Um, um, you know, I think that this episode, I mean, and we, we should talk about like the, the, you know, the final scene. Yeah. But I think also the way that they position, and this is a credit to George R. R. Martin's narrative uh, style, but like the way that they position Rob and Catelyn in this sort of beholden relationship to Frey that doesn't really come to bear until a whole, almost a whole season later. Yeah. But. I just think that like this show is, was so good at setting stuff up and remembering stuff and trusting its, you know, viewership to, to really, you know, take inventory and sort of file stuff away in the right places and, and, and have it all pay off. And so to kind of do, I think what is, uh, became a more famous scene in season three than, than even the, this, the, the end of this episode, um, to set that in, in motion so many episodes earlier, 
you know, nine, 10 episode uh, hours earlier is, is just really smart. And, and I think like really thorough storytelling. And so I think that in addition to the obvious thing, that's another example of why this episode is so crucial to the show's sort of profile. Absolutely. It's why it, it's definitely why it makes it into the 15 word recap. <laughs> it's like the, the introduction of, of Walter Frey, um, you know, is, is essential to what comes. David Bradley, such good casting, so repulsive and great in this role. And, you know, the episode spends a lot of time with what happens at the twins because it has to, to set it up. And, and I agree. I I really like that. Um, this, and, and, you know, speaking of, you know, as you did in, in the first episode that we talked about, the pilot sleeping on Rob Stark, Rob Stark is like a commander, in this episode, because he makes this really hard for him choice to send a couple thousand decoy troops after Tywin and put the, you know, send the bulk of his men after Jamie. And he wins that battle and captures Jamie. It's a huge victory for the Stark side, right? And in this same episode, we hear Ned in the Black Cells say, like, he's just a boy. Like, this is his, like, boy son who makes this very smart military decision um that weighs on him he's like the you know he's not just like yeah fuck yeah we did it which is like i think some sometimes how how things can be boiled down and uncomplicated maybe in later seasons but like this is just sort of like here's the weight of of the choice that i just had to make um richard madden so good there's also this great moment in this scene you know there's so much we remember this is sansa and aria and ned but there's this moment in the scene where catelyn's waiting to find out what happened to rob and we should say like um a lot of this is budgetary like Tyrion getting knocked out and missing the whole battle that happens over there and the fact that we uh rob beating jamie happens off screen that's a budgetary thing they couldn't do battle episodes back then if they were to do it now, it would be like a whole big, like the whole episode would be like Rob fighting Jamie Lannister on the field. But it's so much more effective, I think, to watch Michelle Fa- Fairley as Catelyn looking for her son, not knowing what happened to him, than her face when she sees him. And then, you know, uh, what Nicola Coaster Waldo as Jamie does after he's been captured and like talking about like, let's just end it now this way. You know, all, all of that. It's all good stuff. And I think it's all better, in my view, for what I like in television than, you know, e- epic battle scenes. Not yeah. that I, not that I hate the battle episodes. They're great battle episodes of Game of Thrones, but this is like an inventive way to get around it, I guess. We also know what those, you know, what battle looks like. We've seen it in a million other things. And I think that something that this story, uh, you know, sorry to keep referencing the books, but like that, it's about like <laughs> never <laughs> have to apologize for that to me. You know, the books are about this war torn land and about what life during wartime is for people. And obviously some of those people are at the center of that, but some aren't. And I think that having a sort of this notion of a battle happening in the distance or sort of unseen, but like still, you know, sort of felt like, like I think that, the, you know, yes, it's a budget cheat, but it's also like not everything during war is the battleground like there's stuff surrounding it and i think the show is kind of cognizant of that in a in a smart way that also yes solves some some budget problems and we should mention this is also like 
people didn't uh, one thing i oh yeah one thing that i noticed rewatching season one uh is the order of credits like the fact that Aiden gillen and ian glenn are uh who play jorah and littlefinger are uh, credited above kit harrington which is just fun and funny and like yeah. they were better known actors they had better agents whatever kit harrington shares a credit card with uh richard madden um and you know so but the fact that you know this this is what George R. R. Martin does in his books and what the show does, which is sneakily give you a hero narrative for Jon Snow that you didn't know you're watching. Like, it's kind of clear that you're watching the rise of a hero with Daenerys. And I think, you know, it's not completely sneaky that you're watching the rise of Jon Snow. But like, if you watch the first season, you think this is Ned Stark show, you know, if you know nothing else. But what we are seeing is like the rise of the next generation, which is Jon Sansa, Arya, Daenerys, and John gets his wep his hero's weapon in this episode. He gets a long mm-hmm. claw, and so that's like that's a big, you know, heroic trope moment that ha- also happens here. So there we go. And then we should talk about the last scene and like the reason that so much is said about this episode generally in in the TV landscape is is just the shocking. If you haven't read the books. Uh, the shocking death of the show's ostensible hero of its lead actor. Um, and it, and it really, you know, I hate to overblow it, but really did change forever sort of like the rules of TV in terms of who's safe. Something that like Joss Whedon flirted with in, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but he never like killed, well, he did kill Buffy. But anyway, okay, regardless. Um, this is something that like TV had been like flirting with for a while, but this like really changed it in a way that then a bunch of TV shows started to try to chase, um, which maybe dilutes its impact a little bit, given how many shows have tried to like pull this same thing off themselves later. Um, but this, this is it. This is like the big, the big cultural moment. And the, between this and the wedding that you alluded to in season three are what I think really got this series on the radar of people beyond like fantasy fans and stuff like that. It's just like people were talking about it. And so then people felt like they needed to watch it and they caught up with it. And that's how you get a global phenomenon. So, yeah, I mean, you got to break a few Starks to make, you know, an omelet or whatever, like (laughs) that old adage, uh, you know, and I think that like, you know, not everyone's on Twitter, obviously, but I remember when this aired and when certainly when the, the episode in season three aired, um, I don't know why we're being coy about it. I assume people have seen it, but, um, but, uh, just people being like, holy shit. Like, and it was just so satisfying to have read the books and be like, mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like there was, it was, it became this fun exchange between, you know, book fan and new TV fan that wasn't antagonistic, that wasn't like purist. It was just sort of like, yeah, isn't that crazy? Um, and so it really created this, this fun energy around the show that, um, you know, I don't think has it was dissipated some to some extent, but I think also like they've maintained that um throughout. But this was really the, the beginning of the um kind of thing of like, you know, the SNL did the skit about where Bobby Moynihan played George R. R. Martin. He was like, I'm gonna kill anyone, you know, like like this kind <laughs> of almost the show's kind of gleeful sadism. Um and, and and the way that you really cannot depend on any character surviving, uh, which is so not the case for like traditional television. Um you know, even in the, in a, in a world of the Sopranos where, you know, major characters died or whatnot, um, it was never Tony. Uh, and, or unless you think that he dies at the end of the show, but, um, right, like you can kill a Tony Soprano or Walter White in the finale, but you can't, but killing Ned Stark in, and in episode nine, like this became a thing that Game of Thrones is famous for too, which is their episode nines being like, 
you know, they don't have 10 episodes anymore, but like when they did, it was like episode nine is when the big shit goes down and 10 is when we wrap it all up. And so that sort of started here as well. So. Yeah. Well, they don't do 10 episodes anymore because each episode is now three hours long. So. That's true. But I mean, like, I think in a different show, Ned's head coming off is the season finale. It's oh, like fully. the last, yeah. you know, it's the last thing that happens. And that's not how it works in the book. And that's not how it works on the show either. So and I, I like Weiss and Benioff for sort of respecting the rhythms of what the un the unorthodox rhythms of what George is doing here. Um yeah, so Ned's dead and and this this message also that like not just like okay, we can kill the biggest actor on our show, but also, you know, Ned was an honorable figure. And so this is the world we're living in. We're living in a brutal world where honor being the good guy is not going to protect you. You know, yeah. um, Cersei, yeah. Cersei has a great, you know, that famous line, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And, uh, but, but to, for the show to have the cojones, uh, for George R. R. Martin to have the cojones to like back that up with like, oh, no, really, we're killing Ned Stark right here, mm-hmm. right now is, is monumental. It's yeah, also fascinating to think about, and I'm going to spoil something for, I, I'm assuming people have watched, but, um, just spoiler alert. Um, it's fascinating to think about, okay, so we have Ned dying and we have Catelyn and Rob making an uneasy pact with Walder Frey, which would have disastrous consequences for them. And in the middle of that is Arya being radicalized in a, in a sense by her father's, by semi witnessing her father's death. And then seasons and seasons later in her new form, killing Walder Frey as revenge. You know, like it's just so crazy that like from season one, episode nine, we got resolution to some of that, you know, so many years later. It's just, it's a testament to the show's like longstanding, uh, you know, the, the breadth and the length of its sort of storylines, I think is so, so compelling. Absolutely. And, and yeah. And then just like last few things of this, something that I've been doing going through the season and I might do something formally on our website, vf.com about it, but I've been sort of clocking these last looks. Like when you see a character look at another character, you know, they're never going to see each other again. Um, Catelyn and Ned have like an all timer, uh, you know, a few episodes previous to this one, um, where they say goodbye in King's Landing and like, you feel like you can tell they think they're not going to see each other again and mm-hmm. they don't. Um, but so Ned, Looking at Sansa, Sansa just like losing it. Sophie Turner just really doing it. Um, and then him looking for Arya because he's seen her at the statue. And then he, I'm getting a little misty eyed thinking about it actually. He sees her at the statue. Uh, he's led out into the crowd. The statue is of, of Baylor and he just says the word Baylor to Yorin, this nice watchman who's there as in like, go get my daughter off that statue so she doesn't have to see this. And you know, Yorin, like grabs Arya so she doesn't have to see. And on the one hand, of course that's better. But on the other hand, like Ned can't help but look for her again. Like right before he dies, he's looking for her. And I can't tell if he's like relieved that she's not on the statue or disappointed. Um, I think it's both to not, yeah, to not see her, but it's just, so it's profoundly affecting. So, yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I was going to, uh, the intention was to keep these kind of light and zippy, but um, then Ned Stark died and I got upset about it. So <laughs> there, there we go. That's Baylor's. Please stay tuned for our interview with actor Miltos Urolimo, who played Sirio Farrell. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. 
Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. here at Still Watching have a very special deal for our listeners that we're really excited to tell you about. If you are not already a subscriber to Vanity Fair, either to the print or the digital side, we just want to let you know we have a special 50% off offer running through April that's tied to Game of Thrones. So if you go to VanityFair.com slash Thrones, enter the promo code Thrones, you get 50% off. Okay, the standard deal is actually a really good deal. It's a whole year for $15 for both the print magazine and the digital option, or you can get one year just digital if you don't want any print magazines coming to your house. Plus, you get this incredible tote bag. But with our promo, you get all of that for $7.50. $7.50 for an entire year, less than 10 bucks for an entire year of any fair access. Plus the tote bag. I can't even get, I can't get over how good the tote bag is. So anyway, all of that happens. If you're deciding between whether or not to get like digital or print and digital bundled together, I just will let you know that we've had some incredible photographs in our magazine recently. So you might want to consider getting the print delivered to you because I don't know if you saw our sumptuous, beautiful Hollywood cover that had incredible photographs. Um, some of your favorites on there, Timothy Chalamet, Chadwick Boseman, et cetera, et cetera. Or, if you saw our style issue, which features the King in the North himself, Richard Madden, I mean, these photos, you're going to want them on your wall. I, 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 I do. So anyway, go to vanityfair.com slash thrones, enter promo code thrones, $7.50 whole year, all of our Game of Thrones content, bring down the paywall, crash into Fanny Fair, enjoy what we have to say about Game of Thrones. Do it. Do it. Okay, a quick note for listeners before we hop into our conversation with Miltos. Number one, obviously, I cheated to get Miltos on this episode. Sio Farrell is not in Baylor. He dies in the episode previous, the pointy end. But I just love Miltos so much and all of his stories that I fudged it a little to get him on this podcast. The other thing is that um, Miltos had to phone in from London, and so the connection's a little crackly in places. We did our best to sort of clean up the audio, but if you hear any pops or hisses, uh, that's because this is a transatlantic call. So please enjoy our conversation with Sirio Farrell himself, Miltos Urelamo. I was just rewatching what I think is your audition. It's at least footage of you doing lines, sides from the show. Um, yes, of course. Yeah, and I was wondering, what's fun is that your accent for Serio is already there in that audition footage. What, you know, where did that choice come from for you? Basically, I knew that they wanted me to do something that was different to the rest of uh, Westeros that you knew. Oh, they already knew that he was going to be foreign. Because I was Greek, um, I had already read for the part of uh, Lord Varys, and uh, they liked the reading, but they didn't think I was right for that part. And then, um, and then, and then gave me Syrio to read. You can put your kind of Greek roots to it as an impersonation of my father. And um, and then I just made sure that it didn't sound like it was just a Greek accent because, of course, it was a it's a it's a, a place that doesn't exist. Did it ever when you were watching the show later on? Did it ever? Uh 
I don't know, uh, bum you out that other Bravosi weren't speaking with the same Syrio accent? <laughs> well, uh, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not really. I mean, all I remember is that I, I, I went to um, Dave and Dan and said to them, uh, how do I say the word Bravosi? And went, well, just like that, you're going to be the first person to see it. So <laughs> you can make it up. <laughs> and that's literally what they said to me. So I just said it and that was that was what stuck. But, um, but you know, everyone brings their own unique foreignness to it. You know, I think the Bravosi always, well, Mark Gatiss didn't, but he was an outclass Bravosi. So, <laughs> right. so, I mean... It's, it's fantasy. People do what they like, you know, as long as it's believable. That's really the, the most important thing. I agree. I agree. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about um, the first table read that you remember doing for the show. Yeah, that was a surprise to me uh, because I just hadn't uh, realized just how huge the cast was. You know, I was terrified. <laughs> I felt completely out of my depth. But, uh, for example, I was with um, that wonderful actor who played, you know, the blind guy on the on the on the in the Night's Watch. Right, Peter, Peter Vaughan. Peter Vaughan. Peter Vaughan. Yeah. So, of course, I knew him from British television. Right. I grew up with him. You know, in the comedies and in the. You know, he was always a presence. So for, to me, he was like the coolest person in the room. And I sat next to him and I remember him saying to me, he said, uh, old boy, I, I'm, I'm virtually blind. So I've, I've learned my line, so, but I, I won't be able to follow it in the script. So when my cue comes, just nudge me and I'll just say my line. Oh, I love that. Because <laughs> he's learned it like that. And, and so that was, that, was, that was the greatest thing. That was the most uh, exciting thing of that afternoon. Oh, that's incredible. Um, yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, he was a wonderful man. And then your, and then your first day on set, what was that like for you? Um, uh, terrifying, of course. <laughs> um, we put so much... Um, this is the thing, right? The lucky sods who kind of get episodes and episodes to kind of develop their characters and be introduced. And like, I get like virtually three minutes to kind of <laughs> to do my thing. So uh, Dave and Dan had briefed me that this character was very important to, to, to our story. And, you know, there had to be some kind of, um, and, you know, special bond and it had to be immediate. And it was like, okay, no pressure then. <laughs> but no obviously, you know, I trusted, obviously I trusted them because they, they cast me. So that's what you do as an actor. You go, okay, if you think I'm good enough, I think I'm probably good enough. So, you know, but I'm, I'm a hard worker. So I put in the research and the, you know, I do my homework. That is exciting. I get to work with an amazing, amazing uh, choreographer called William Hobbs and he's the guy that between the two of us we cook up what the vocabulary of the water dance is. I know and that's incredible because it's it's still being you you know you still see Aria use flashes of it on the show what is that like for you all these years later to say hey I helped I helped create that. It's really interesting because um, William Hobbs is a fantastic uh, he's he's uh, just uh has a great understanding of what it takes to make a good um, scene, you know, as far as sword choreography. It has to always tell a story. And, of course, um, he always said initially that I want to know who the character is because that's the, that's the only place to start with 
what we're going to choreograph. And uh, so it was very slow and very methodical, but it, it really worked because of that. And then I got to, I got to uh, go to Northern Ireland because I'd only been working with Maisie's stunt double. All right. And I went to Northern Ireland to teach what I'd learned. It's amazing. And, uh, and so we were, we were just going through the moves. That's all we've had time for. And then uh, the director and the producers and David Dan, and they all walk into the room and they go, oh, hi, guys. And uh, they went, can we see the scene? And we were like, we didn't say anything. But inside I was going, we haven't been working on the scene. <laughs> we've just been working on the mood. <laughs> But but because I had everything to lose, <laughs> I just looked at Maisie and and, we, and I just lied and went, okay, we'll show you the scene, and we just improvised it <laughs> by the skin of our teeth. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, and then and then they, and then the only thing they said was very. They went very good. Just put a bit more tango into it. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally what they said. And was that the uh, the very the introduction between Sirio and Ari? Yeah, the very first lesson. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, what's it been like for you just watching the show in the years since? It's very exciting for me because I'm one of those. And I know a lot of actors say it, and sometimes it's just an affectation. But seriously, I don't really watch myself on in what I do because you know I I'm busy and I get to do other things, and I'm a little bit self-conscious because I only see the kind of the real nuanced things that no one else notices. Where I just go, why, why, why am I pulling that face? You know, <laughs> so um, right. so I kind of avoid it. But of course, you have to watch it because I have to go to. Um, Game of Thrones conventions and and you know you're endlessly watching yourself in front of other people so so that's hard but what's great when you're when when you when you leave a show that you like you can watch it and it's it's so much better because you don't have to worry about the scene that you're in that's coming up <laughs> you know you're you're always engaged you know and also because you've got a bit of skin in the game you're kind of a bit more connected to it too you know, I'm, I'm kind of there's, there's actual moments where I feel proud when I watch Maisie Williams, Aww. and it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a ridiculous feeling. Is there any Maisie moment that stands out for you, especially we were like, yeah, that's my girl right there. There she is. <laughs> <laughs> when she did that, when she did that, uh, that uh, mock fight with Brienne in yes, Winterfell. Yes, I mean that was fantastic. I, I was a bit disappointed when I I think it was season four when they they have her practicing and uh, and she's doing it in front of the hound uh, and and I thought it was just a little too flowery the choreography it was a little it was obviously not done by the person who did it for me right. um, but it's, it was a little too flowery but then when you saw in, I think it was season seven wasn't it last season yes when she has that fight and they put a whole lot of um, motifs into it so it was really special yeah really good is there anything specifically that you want to see in the final season oh I want to see the moment where Arya Stark has to kill Jamie. that's like a, a oh. terrible twist 
uh, <laughs> vision in my head because remember she still has the list yeah and the Lannisters are still on that list and whether it's um, Cersei or Jamie, I think because Game of Thrones is cruel it would be easy for it to be Cersei but if it's Jamie, who we now all love <laughs> I think that's going to be problematic but I think that's what Game of Thrones does so well it makes it doesn't make it easy to to like to like it or the characters or invest any emotional attachment <laughs> oh, okay so you're you're banking on Arya Stark killing Jamie Lannister and the conflict yeah, we'll feel be, about that yeah I think so yeah. well uh, you know but, but I'm perverse so <laughs> it could be just a warped fantasy <laughs> and what about I there's a theory I like that um, because Arya's an assassin you know um, yeah. that she might be the one to kill the Night King because like a, a big force won't do it uh daenerys yeah. on her dragon might not be able to do it but yeah. Arya with her sneaky faceless man way yeah be able to yeah i think all of those things could be absolutely uh possible i think the thing is is that wherever it goes it's too full of uh, possibility and i have every faith that you're going to um succeed in 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 uh being as good as we expected. I guess I did want to loop back and ask, is there anything about the scenes that you shot? Um, and I love all of them. I love the, I love the one where um, you basically see um, Aria and Sirio's water dancing, and then it fades into that, you know, the clashing sounds of battle and you watch yeah. Ned Stark watching them. And it's so yeah. upsetting for him. <laughs> Is there is there anything about the scenes that you filmed that I don't know might might surprise people? There's there's one moment that still surprises me to this day, and it's in the very lesson where I'm talking about the weight of the sword and I flip it, flip it over my hand and then catch it on the back of the same hand, and um, I never practiced, <laughs> I never rehearsed wow. it, I never did it once. But I thought about doing it the morning of when I was going to work. And I thought, to, you know, like I was running the lights through my head and I kind of was visualizing me being much cooler than I actually was. <laughs> and, um, and, and I was just visualizing it. And I thought to myself, yeah, that would be great. But then I didn't think twice about it. And then during the scene when we were shooting it, I actually did it. I actually did it. And it worked and it landed on my hand. And I could see out the periphery of my vision all the stunt people like jump up and down in silence. <laughs> Unbel- they could not believe what they saw. Like they were looking like, who taught him that? When, where did that come from? So I'm particularly proud of. And then, uh, you know, I- I'm curious, other than your obviously amazing performance, what you think it is about Sarah Farrell that has kept him such a fan favorite in so many people's hearts and minds uh, over a few, a handful of scenes in season one of a, of an eight season television show. I think it goes back to the creation of the character that George R. R. Martin created in the, in the, in the books, which was, um, you know, the, it's the, it's the archetypal story of the unconventional teacher giving a lesson to the protagonist and then disappearing from their lives. It happens all the time. And of course, you know, I, I mentioned Ben Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. It's the same thing. It's, it's like 
the mentor starts the gen- the journey, but the protagonist is who you follow. And and we're, we've always been uh, fascinated by, you know, that kind of mystical training, which kind of allows you to be so much better than yourself. And and you know, it kind of satisfies in us something spiritual. Spiritual, but I think it's a, I think it's like the archetypal story, and and it's. It's a nice way of introducing a character or giving them a skill that they have to then master, you know, throughout their their journey. So the assassin thing, the you know, that that's probably that's what it is. And I was lucky enough to be given the job, and 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 uh, and lucky enough that people kind of bought it too, you know, and and believed it. But I believed it when I was doing it. So I'm sure that's you know that that kind of helped. But yeah, it's it's all George's um, doing. I mean, you already mentioned Jamie Lannister, but is there one maybe death that you're most looking as a, as a horror fan, a death you're most looking forward to in the final season? Oh, uh, looking forward to wow! I'm looking forward to how they kill the Night's King, but um, but I'm not looking forward really to many deaths. I I kind of even got on board with Cersei Lannister after the whole. Um, religious fanatic debacle. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of. There's not one person who I hate. Um, maybe I, I tell you what will be really interesting is how they finish the story with Theon and his and in his family and and all of that. I'm interested in that, and I hope they do it justice because it's a real cliffhanger. Um, I know you've done you've done a lot of work at fan conventions around the world over the past few years Mm -hmm. since you appeared. Um, I'm wondering if you have any sort of unified theory uh, now. I've heard you say a few over the years, but now at this point, a unified theory as to why Game of Thrones hit the way that it did. Oh, I mean, it's really, I mean, I don't know if I actually know the answer to that because it's so complicated, but it's also about it hitting a moment when we were all ready for it. it it's not, it goes beyond so When we were making it, we knew HBO were making it. We knew they had good rep and we knew that, that, that uh, it was, it was being made with, with the right, with the right intentions, with heart and, and soul and, and all of that. We knew so it was going to be good, but there's lots of things, lots of shows that are good. But for some reason, it, 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 it broke out of the television world and became saturated in everything we do it's like it gets name checked on the news now it's now a whole political especially at the moment everything is referred to as game of thrones politics it's just it's just it's penetrated our imaginations in ways that i don't know how don't really know how that happened except that we were just so ready for it that when it i mean the books helped because of course there was a huge following Germany, they loved it. America loved it. Britain, you know, we, we're always slow to kind of know what's cool. <laughs> even when the show came, even when the show came out, the reviews, British press were like, they just went, it's just a whole bunch of RSC actors in cosplay. It's you know, forget it. And it took three seasons before everyone got on board and went, hey, this is really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it didn't happen immediately everywhere, but there was enough of a fan base because of the literature. And because they were very clever, HBO invited the biggest fans to come and be part of, you know, the build-up to the show. And, and that inclusion really 
connected with the fans and that just spread. Uh, and George R. R. Martin has always been very, very, in, you know, he's he's involved in the people that read his work. He's a collaborator. So, so all of I'm sure, sure it's just a, a, a kind of a perfect storm of of, of things. That does it for this week's episode of Still Watching Game of Thrones. Next time we will be talking about Season 2, Episode 9, The Battle of Blackwater with director Neil Marshall. In the meantime, you can find Richard on Twitter at Rylaws. I'm at Joe Rothis, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.